This morning we're starting a new series in the Gospel of John and picking it up in uh, chapter 13. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you will open up to chapter 13. But before we dig into the Word, uh, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are grateful for the opportunity to come together to have freedom to worship, to have security, safety. That is something that many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have right now. To have the opportunity to lift our voices loudly in praise. What a blessing. Father, we this morning we give thanks to you for the blessing as well of joining together with partners reaching around the world to share the gospel in places where we cannot be. Folks like the Allengers, and so grateful that after uh, years of working hard, they are. it looks like they are finally going to be able to go. Thank you for providing, and we pray that you would go before them, prepare a way that they might have effective ministry there. Lord, there are so many in this world of, I think it's what, 8 billion people now? So many who do not know Christ. We pray that you would raise up more faithful workers who would go to places where there are not others sharing the gospel. That your gospel will be loudly and boldly proclaimed throughout all of the world to every tribe and tongue and people. Father, this morning as well as we come on a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we come rejoicing that after years of effort and trial, we have seen in this last year the Roe versus Wade overturned that at least to some extent has stemmed some of the tide of, of abortions, of slaughtering the innocent in our land. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work changes in our land, that we would not see this travesty among us. But we recognize it's not the problem in our land. It's merely a symptom. It's a symptom of a people that has rejected you. For Father, we recognize in our nation that the majority of people are apathetic to you. And many are outright uh, antagonistic toward you. So we pray, Father, that you would be in revival in this land. That you would start with us, your people, that you would bring revival among us. Draw our wayward hearts near to you. Bring repentance where it is needed. And Father, that we would be, live a faithful testimony to our, to our nation and our culture. And that that might lead to millions of people turning their hearts to Jesus. We ask even in this year. Father, we ask now in this morning as we open your word to this powerful passage before us, maybe you begin to do a change in our hearts, in our lives. Change us and make us more like Jesus. That the world may see in us your love, that the world may see in us your grace, and that it would point them to you. And that they might come to know our Savior. So that end, we commit ourselves, we ask your blessing as we open your word to hear from you. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13. Eight hours. It began one Thursday evening, just as the sun disappeared into the horizon, into the western sky. And in Jewish thinking, a new day began. It was now Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews had traveled from all over Israel and all over, in fact, from the world to come to Jerusalem to observe this feast. And likewise, Jesus and His disciples gathered together in an upstairs room to celebrate the Passover meal together. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Three times in John's Gospel, John records about Jesus that his hour had not yet come. John chapter 2 verse 4 says, "My Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7 verse 30, Jesus said, my time has not yet come. John chapter 8 verse 20, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now as this scene unfolds here in John 13, it informs us Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world. The hour has come. Jesus knows that in a very short time, everything will change for this group of His disciples. And it will change in ways that the, these unaware disciples can simply not imagine. Before the next sundown, Jesus will be betrayed. He will be arrested. He will be beaten. He will be tried. He will be scourged. He will be mocked. He will be condemned. He will be crucified. He will be dead. And He will be buried in less than 24 hours. As Jesus and these disciples gather in this upper room, it is only about eight hours, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, until Jesus will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we get the title for this series. Jesus' public ministry is over and... For these few short hours, Jesus devotes His full attention to His own, to His close followers. The Apostle John considered these words of Jesus this night to be so significant, to be so important, that he devotes five chapters, roughly a quarter of his gospel, to this night, to these eight hours. 
He's devoted these chapters here, these words, this part of his gospel to, as it were, to bring us into the room with Jesus and the disciples so that we can listen in, so that we can hear the words of Jesus that night. As we read his words, we can almost hear the emotion dripping from Jesus' words. We can hear the urgency with which he speaks because there is so much that these disciples need to hear. And these chapters will be our focus of study for the next ten weeks, leading us right up until Easter. In these hours, Jesus covers many different subjects. But the central theme where he begins here in chapter 13 and where it ends in chapter 17 and all throughout this whole section, the central theme is how Jesus loves and cares for his own. It's a marvelous, marvelous section of Scripture. And I think the Lord will use it to greatly touch us and bless us and hopefully to change us in the weeks ahead. We pick it up in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. These words and the scene that John describes here should shock us, but it doesn't. Partly because most of us, it's so familiar to us, we've heard it before, we've simply grown used to hearing it. Partly because this is so far away from us culturally, I mean, sure, we, we can understand still today in 2023, we can understand that washing someone's dirty feet is an unpleasant thing. It's not a pleasant job. But for them, in this culture, both because of the situation with people's dirty feet and because of the culture, washing feet was considered a debasing, a demeaning act, so low that some slaves were exempt from being asked to do it. You see, in Israel, if you had a Jewish slave, you could not ask them to wash feet. It was beneath them. That's where they drew the line. <laughs> we might think of several other places to draw the line, but that's where they said, that's it. Not acceptable. It's too dirty. It's too much. And yet here is Jesus washing feet. 
Jesus, the rabbi. Jesus, the honored teacher. Jesus, the Lord. Jesus, the master. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. The creator of the universe. Jesus, the one before whom all the myriads of angels in heaven bow before Him. They worship Him. They adore Him. They serve Him. Jesus is here cleaning our mess, washing our filthy, stinking feet. See, brothers and sisters, this should shock us. This is astounding. As I was reading this this week, I was just imagining What was the scene in heaven at this moment? As the angels look look down and they see Jesus washing feet, I imagine there was a collective gasp. It sounded like the roar of the loudest oceans we've ever heard as all the angels... Silence. I think it's that shocking. We tend to just skip past it. But this is something monumental and it should lead us to ask the question, why would Jesus wash feet? And I think our text gives us three answers They're worthy of our attention this morning. First, I take us back to verse 1, where it says, Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Again, all through this whole section, these whole eight hours, It is just filled with the love of Jesus Christ. And here, that last phrase where it says, He loved them to the end can be, can mean to the end of Jesus' life. Which Jesus certainly did. He loved them all the way to the cross. Whereupon He took His last breath. Brothers and sisters, when it says that He loved His own, it's not just talking about His own in the upper room because the Scripture is clear that every one of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are His own people, as we saw in Peter just a few weeks ago. People for His own possession. We are His people. He loved us to His very last breath. But it can also be translated here to the uttermost or to the fullest extent, meaning that He loved us to the max. He loved us as far as love can go, as far as love can love. And by the way, since Jesus not only died on the cross, but since He rose again from the dead, His love didn't end the moment He died on the cross. His love continues now. He is the eternal God. He is alive today. He loves us infinitely in time and He loves us infinitely in quantity. He has loved us to the end. Both of those 
statements are true. And this little phrase can mean both of that. And this vast love of Jesus Christ is vividly and beautifully on display all through these chapters, all the way to the cross, and particularly for us this morning, right here in the passage that we're reading. You see, when love sees a need, love takes action. It's quite easy to say, I love you. And we often say that, but we really don't mean it. Or we say it and we think we mean it, but when it's put to the test, you see, we really don't do it. Because love isn't just words. Love is attached to action. Love is far more, of course, than a feeling. We all know that. But love, love that is genuine shows up. In action. And this is Jesus' love in action. Why would Jesus wash feet? It's his love in action. When love sees a need, love humbles itself. What I mean by that is love puts aside its own desires. Love puts aside its own, its own needs. Love puts aside its own agenda. Love puts aside even its own rights in order to serve and to meet the need of the one who is loved. This is what Jesus did that night. He saw a need. Perhaps he smelled a need. <laughs> and he met it. There were dirty feet that needed washing. Love and humility go hand in hand. They are inextricably bound together. You see, biblical love means to put, the, to put another person ahead of ourself. That requires humility. A proud person cannot love. It requires humility like Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 where he says, In humility count others more significant than yourselves. And if you know that passage, you know he goes on then to describe in the next few verses, he goes to say, uh, Let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes all the way down how he humbled himself even to death on a cross. Love in action takes humility. You know, if anyone ever had a reason, if anyone ever had a legitimate reason to be self-absorbed, we all have reasons to be focused on ourselves, but they're not legitimate. <laughs> But if anyone had a legitimate reason to be self-absorbed, it was Jesus on this night. Jesus knew what was coming. Our text tells us that. He knew that He was about to be humiliated, about to be tortured, about to be crucified, and worse. He knew that on the cross, He was going to bear all of the wrath of God for the sin of man. He would endure an eternity of hell, the price of our sin, He would endure that 
on the cross for us. Jesus deserved sympathy. He deserved comforting. He deserved understanding. He deserved encouraging. He deserved pampering. But instead, Jesus concerned Himself with the needs of others. Love humbly counts others more significant than themselves. Jesus knew not only the coming horrors, but He also knew, as our text said, as we read together, it said He knew that where He came from. He came from God. He knew where He was going. He was going back to God. He knew the Father had placed all things into His hands. He knew that, in other words, He is the, the supreme sovereign of the universe. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is King over all. He had the right, He had the most right of anyone ever to demand to be served. Hey guys, do you know what I'm going to do for you? The least you can do is wash my feet. He didn't didn't need to say it sarcastically, it was reality. He had the right to order it. But He didn't do that. Because love does not insist on its right. He did the opposite. Love humbles itself. Love is willing to take the lowest place. Love is willing to take the lowest job. Love is willing to bear the blows. Love is willing to give up its piece of pie. Now I've gone to meddling. Love is willing to get up early. Love is willing to step late. Love is willing to do whatever it takes to serve another. Jesus washed feet because He loves. Someone once wrote, Humility isn't about considering yourself as less. Humility is about not considering yourself at all. There's reality in that. That's why Jesus washed feet. He loved, and so He humbled Himself. There's a second reason. We find it in the next verses, actually. Verses 6. Follow along as I read. Verses 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. We can imagine that an awkward and embarrassed silence must have filled the room when the disciples realized that he was washing their feet. 
Most of us love Peter because Peter is that guy who just says out loud what everybody else is thinking silently but is too ashamed or too afraid to say. And so when Jesus gets to Peter, he blurts out, Lord, are you washing my feet? And she's saying, is this really happening? Are you really going to do this? You will never, it's it's in the original, it's a double negative. You will never, ever, never wash my feet. Period. Notice Jesus says here in verse 7, he says, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. In other words, what Jesus will say later in this night, he says, the Holy Spirit is coming. And when he comes to you, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to bring to mind everything I've said, everything I've done. And he will help you understand. So, Peter, you don't get it right now. Don't worry. Just don't fight it. Well, Peter, no, I'll never, ever, ever. But Jesus is moving past dirty feet. He's moving past dirty feet and he's talking about a spiritual principle. Why is Jesus washing their feet? He's teaching a spiritual principle. Dirty feet are now an object lesson They are going to be a living illustration that Jesus is going to use to talk about our need for spiritual cleansing. That in order for us to have fellowship with Jesus, we need to be spiritually clean. Jesus, you see, goes on. Look there in verse 8. He says, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, if I don't wash you, we're not having any fellowship. And so Peter says, well, that's the case. If it means, you know, we're not, we're not tight together anymore, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, give me a bath, give me a shower. I love Peter. He just always goes from one extreme to the other. And what he doesn't realize is what he just told Jesus is, you're not doing what you think you're doing. And then, when Jesus says, well, you know, then Peter says, okay, Jesus, what you're doing isn't enough. And we gripe at Peter, but we realize, you know, how often do we do the same thing? I do it a lot. You know, God, I just, I think you got it wrong. I think you got the wrong thing here. I have a better plan. And I do that all the time. We've talked about that before. Whenever we think that we have a better plan, we know it's not. There's a way that seems right to man, and the end is the way of death. But Jesus is so gentle with Peter here. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean except for his feet. It's just like if you've ever been camping. You've been camping and they got a central bathhouse. And you go after a hard, long day of camping. It feels so good to take a hot shower and wash all the dust and the dirt and the sunscreen and whatever else off. Oh, so good. And then you... It's been a long day and you go back and you get to the door of your tent and you're about to stumble in and fall in and and crash because it's been a long day and you realize that you're clean but your feet are filthy. On the path between the bathhouse and your tent, they just managed to get all dirty again. That's what Jesus is saying here. Most likely they'd all taken a bath that morning before they left Bethany 
and they walked across the Kidron Valley and they came in here to Jerusalem and they, they've gotten here for the dinner that night. And by now, after a day of walking around, their feet are dirty. He says, you're clean, but your feet aren't. And there's a lesson. Jesus is saying that when we put our faith and trust in Him, we get a bath. We are at that point cleansed from the penalty of our sin. We are declared righteous and we are clean before God. That's what Jesus says happens in John 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish. The penalty of sin is wiped away. It's wiped out. We're clean before God. We have eternal life. We are brought into a relationship with God. We become God's children. As John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. See, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we get a bath, is what He's saying. We become God's children. I know that's what this means here when He speaks of this because He says one of them, one of these men in the room here, is not clean. Meaning he is not saved. He's speaking of Judas. And Jesus is saying that to those who are saved, to those who are God's children, to those who have had a bath, we, don't, we need to be clean if we're going to be in fellowship with God. We don't need another bath because we've already been washed clean. But our feet, as we live in this world, as we live in a polluted, broken, fallen world, and as we sin, which we do, because we still sin, even though we aim to live holy lives as His people, we still fail, we still sin. That sin does not break our relationship with God. He is still our Father. We are still His children. But it does break our fellowship. Just as moms and dads, when our children sin against us, they don't stop being our children. And we still love them, but the relationship, the fellowship in our relationship suffers. And so Jesus is saying that we need to have continual cleansing to maintain that fellowship with Him. John will write about this in his first letter explaining to believers about this very thing. How we maintain our fellowship with God. How do we do it? He says it's this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that should be, he's saying, that what all of us as believers need to do continually. And Jesus is showing this as an object lesson. We become, able, we become saved, we, we, we become a child of God by believing in Jesus Christ. But throughout the rest of our life in this planet, until we get to heaven and see Jesus face to face and are changed in a moment and become all that we are destined to be, until now we continue to sin and we need to continually just go to the Lord and say, Wow, Lord, I sinned. I blew it here. What does he say? He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. The fellowship is restored. The closeness is restored. 
May I say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you don't feel very close to Him, it very likely is that you have not been confessing your sin. It's not that your relationship with God has changed. It's not that He's abandoned you. It's that you've walked away from Him and you have not come and confessed and, re- and re- allowed that fellowship to be restored. Back to the text. The third reason why Jesus washes their feet. Verse 12. When He had washed their feet and put on His outer garments and resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? This time Peter didn't answer. Love that. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You know, some folks think that Jesus is saying here that we need to literally be washing one another's feet. And so they periodically will have a foot washing service where they gather around and they will remove one another's shoes and wash one another's feet. And and I can't say that there's anything particularly wrong with such a service. But I think by and large, for most people, they miss the point. By and large, for most people, it's, it's a ceremony. And it's a ceremony of getting together and washing a bunch of feet that don't really need to be washed and then usually feeling good about what they just did. And that's not what Jesus is trying to get across here at all. Jesus isn't calling us to a ritual or to a ceremony. He's giving us an example to follow. John, by the way, records in his gospel, and particularly in this section of our series here, records things that the other other gospels do not cover. And that's simply because John is the last one to write. And there's no need to record the things the others have said. And, And particularly here on this night, John calls attention and gives detail that the other gospels don't have at all, in extensive detail. But John leaves out something that Luke records in Luke 22. Luke 22, that night something happened. And Luke says, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine sitting there and it's speculation on my part because since Luke doesn't record John's things, Luke doesn't record the foot washing and John doesn't record the this, it's, we can't tell which came first. But it's my speculation that this dispute that Luke records happened before the foot washing. The disciples are thick-headed like us, but I don't think they're that thick-headed. Where Jesus would say, after this, he'd say, you know, this whole thing of washing feet and how you need to serve one another, and then ten minutes later they're arguing about who's the greatest. I don't think they're that thick-headed. I think it happens the other way around. They're sitting there at the table, and 
as guys do, one guy says something and a little competition starts to emerge among guys. And they're starting to share their stories, tell about how, you know, I did more than you did. Well, I'm better than you at this. And it turns into a big competition, it turns into an argument, it turns into a dispute, it turns into almost a fight. Nobody's throwing anything, but it's a dispute, it's an argument. And I think they're so into this, again, it's my imagination, but I think they don't even notice as Jesus quietly gets up from his spot. I don't think they notice as Jesus goes over and begins taking off his outer garment and reaches down, picks up a towel and ties it around his waist. I'm not sure when the guys began to notice, but they begin to get quieter and quieter as as more of them start to notice. And by the time he starts washing their feet, I think it's total silence. That got noticed. The point Jesus is making here is not to begin a ritual. It's not to start a ceremony. It's to, to set an example that you and I are like Jesus as Jesus says very plainly here. I have given you an example. We are called to humble ourselves. and We are called to serve one another. If Jesus is willing to humble Himself, If Jesus is willing to wash feet, then we should be willing to serve one another. And it's an example that loudly and clearly proclaims that not a one of us is too big. Not a one of us is too important to do the most menial and the most lowly thing. The most inconvenient thing. The most difficult thing in order to love and to serve one another. That's what it means to follow Jesus. None of us can do everything, but it's saying that every one of us should be ready and willing to do anything to serve God and others. During the Revolutionary War, There was a man riding along on his horse. And he came upon a group of, small group of soldiers that was trying to reinforce or rebuild a little small defensive wall. And the men are struggling. They cannot get this beam up on top of the wall. And they're struggling with everything they have. They are exhausted and exasperated. And they can't get it there. And off to the side, there is a corporal, their commander, who is barking orders at them what to do. And the man, as he rides by, he sees this and he stops his horse and he's watching for a little bit. And he speaks to the corporal and says, Sir, why aren't you helping them? And he indignantly looked up at the man on the horseback and he said, Can you not see that I am a corporal? And the man on the horse said, Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I can see that. And he got down off his horse and he went over and he worked with these men and he labored and struggled and strained with them as they got the beam up into place. And then he went back over to his horse and as he started to get on, 
He said, Mr. Corporal, say, next time you have a job like this to do and not enough men to do it, I want you to go and find your commander-in-chief and ask him for help and I'll come do it. And with that, George Washington rode away. See, George Washington understood this reality. There is no job beneath us. We are called to be servants. And so we ought to be. Jesus concludes this with a couple of very important points to keep in mind. The first is this. He says, verse 17, If, or literally since, you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowing and doing these things, not just knowing them, but doing them brings blessings. Let me ask, do you want blessings in your life? Anybody? There's only one person in the first service. Okay, there's a few more in this one. (laughs) You're still tentative. I'm not sure if I want to... Well, Jesus says right here, do you want blessing? Knowing and doing these things, blessed are you if you do them. There you go. Putting these things into practice will bring joy and blessing into your life. I won't promise that it will fix every problem. I won't promise that it will make your life totally pleasant, but He's saying it brings blessing. I have a feeling that if we do these things, it will change our relationships. It will change our attitudes. Probably mend a lot of broken relationships. And it will definitely increase our impact for Christ's kingdom as people see people who are humble and who love and serve others. The other thing Jesus says, though, he goes on, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus says the promise of blessings there, that doesn't apply to everybody. The blessings aren't for everyone. Jesus knows his own, he says, and one of these twelve is not his own, Judas. Judas doesn't belong to Jesus. Doing good deeds, doing good things, being humble and serving others, that does no ultimate good to a person who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because good works do not and cannot save us. Only believing in Jesus Christ does. We read John 3.16 earlier. That makes it very plain. It's not by doing good things. It's by believing trusting in Jesus Christ. Judas spent three years following Jesus. Judas spent three years going, as it were, to church. Judas spent three years doing good deeds with the disciples and Jesus. But he didn't believe in Jesus. He only hung around Him for what he thought he could get from Him. Being around Jesus doesn't save you. Coming to church doesn't save you. Watching church online doesn't save you. Trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Personally owning Him as your Savior and Lord. That's what saves you. If you have not put your faith and trust in Him today, I urge you to do that. Jesus calls you to do that. Trust in Him as your Savior. Let's pray. Well, Father, wow, what a passage. 
And we're just scratching the surface of this marvelous, marvelous section of Scripture. Thank you for your word. It reminds us of things that we so desperately need to hear because we wrestle with these things. Father, we freely admit that we struggle with pride, that we so often fail to be humble. We we are looking for our own interests, for our own comfort, for our own agendas, for our own desires, and we are running over others instead of serving them. Forgive us for that, Father. Cleanse that from us. Restore our fellowship with You. And Father, will You change us? Put in us the heart of the servant. Put in us Your heart of love. Father, thank You for sending Jesus who served us most especially by giving Himself for us. By taking our sin and giving us His righteousness as a gift. Father, may we follow in His footsteps. And may that make a difference. May people look at us and see in us the humility of Christ. May they look at us and see the love of Christ. And may then they see us point them to Jesus. May we see people even this very year, even this very month, may we see people around us who come to faith in Jesus because we point them to Him in our words and through our actions. This we ask in His name. Amen.